So I've said before, and I'm going to say it again today, that all of us is really three, all of us are really three different people. First of all, you're the person who you consider yourself to be. And secondly, there is the person who other people think that you are. And then um, thirdly, there is the person who you actually truly are before the Lord. And integrity, that word integrity, you know it means something which is not divided, right? So integrity is when all three of those people are one and the same. Okay, so who you think you are and who other people perceive you to be, in other words, the image that you project, and who you actually truly are before God when they're one in the same, that's the definition of integrity. It means there's a oneness to who you are. There's no duality, no division. And the opposite of that is when you project an image or when people think that you are somebody who in actuality you are not before God. Now, now, why would somebody think that you are something which you are not? Well, I'm sure there's more than one reason, but, but many times it's because we project an image, right? Everybody projects an image. Uh, there are things that we want people to know about us, and there are things that we don't necessarily want people to know about us, right? And so all of us have a persona, right? The things that we want people to think about us, who, they, who we want them to think we are, even if it might not be the whole picture. And what we're going to see in our story today here in uh, the second part of 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're going to see a man who was extremely concerned with his image. He was extremely concerned with how other people perceived him and what they thought of him. This man's name is Saul. And he wanted people to think that he was super spiritual. That's the title of our message today, by the way, super spiritual. The problem was with Saul, it, it was just an act, as we'll see. It wasn't reality it did he, he didn't have the goods to back it up really right he was just trying to impress people but in the end what we're going to see in his attempt to prove himself super spiritual and win everybody's respect he's going to do just the opposite today we're going to see that he actually tries to appear super spiritual but he's not actually spiritual and as a result instead of winning people's respect he's going to lose it the, this is contrasted in our story with the, another man named Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of Saul. And, and what we see in Jonathan always is a contrast between him and his father. In Jonathan, we actually do see a person of integrity. He's not just concerned with his image. He's not just concerned with looking good. He's concerned with actually being spiritual. And that's what we're going to be talking about. What is it that actually makes a person super spiritual? If, uh, if you remember last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 14 it's a long chapter so we're splitting it up and in the first part of chapter 14 we saw that the people of Israel were once again battling against the Philistines the Philistines held the Israelites under a severe domination and oppression for many years and in the midst of this oppression the people of Israel cried out to God and they asked God to give them a king who would deliver them from the Philistines and God heard that request and he gave them a king and he gave them a man named Saul a man who had all the potential in the world to be a great leader who had all the potential in the world to be a spiritual leader and to lead the people out of the oppression of the Philistines and God gave this man Saul an army 3,000 men strong to fight under him part of that army Saul put under the leadership of his son Jonathan Saul appointed Jonathan to be kind of his right hand man his number two and last week we saw how Jonathan was used of the Lord in a great way. While Saul was timid and, and afraid of, 
you know, the enemy that they were up against, Jonathan stepped out in faith and bold trust in the promises of God, that God would give them victory, that God had called them to be in that place. And Jonathan just had this beautiful attitude of bold faith. He said, maybe God wants to do something great, and maybe he wants to do it today, and maybe he even wants to do it through me. He says, so I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to put myself in a position where if God wants to, he can use even me today. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be available for him to work through me. That's such a great attitude, and, and Jonathan's such a great example of that kind of attitude for us. So the Philistines, uh, they were in a place, coming into chapter 14, where they were ready to wipe out the nation of Israel. Really, uh, this is the nation that God had promised to bring salvation into the whole world through these people. And at this point, going into chapter 14, they were facing, ex, ex, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Extinction, that's the word I'm looking for. They were facing extinction and imminent destruction. They were about to be wiped off the history books, wiped off the face of the map, right? But God used Jonathan and, and his bold faith in God and his armor bearer, right? Two men. And they were just availed to God. They said, here we are, God, we're yours, whatever you want to do. And God used those two men to give Israel great victory that day. So we left off in chapter 14, verse 23, and this is what it says. It says, the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Now, if you remember, the battle had been in another place, right? They had been in a valley, Michmash. And then it says the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. So what does that mean that it shifted to Beth-Avon? Well, it means this, that right now the Philistines are on the run. The Philistines are retreating. They're running away. The Israelites, are the, you know, the, it's shifted. The Israelites have control of the battle at this point. And, and in some ways, you'd have to say that now is actually the most critical time of the battle. God had already shifted the power over to the Israelites and now when they've got the Philistines on the run, this is the point when it really matters that they focus and they strike down as many people as they can. I mean, I don't want to sound crass or harsh, but that's really what they needed to do at this point. They've got the victory and now they need to shut them down because if they don't, the Philistines are just going to run away, regroup, and come back and attack them later. In fact, that's what's actually going to happen, as we'll see, and we'll see, we'll see why. Uh, we pick up the story in verse 24 of chapter 14. It says, The men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemy. So none of the people tasted food. So we see uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, right? In his bold trust in God, he had struck a mighty blow against the Philistines. God had routed them. They, he had caused confusion. And the Philistine army was on the run. Uh, and it was the job right now of, of the army of Israel under the leadership of King Saul to run after them, catch them, and, and finish them off. And, and on this day of battle, Saul puts the army of Israel, we see, under a forced fast, right? He says, no one's allowed to eat until sundown. He said, we're gonna separate ourselves unto the Lord this day, and we're all gonna fast. This is gonna be a day of fasting unto the Lord. Now, for those of you who might not be sure, a fast is a, a spiritual discipline. God's word encourages us to do this from time to time, and the purpose of a fast is to set aside some physical want or, or desire in order to be more focused on the spiritual things of God. 
On the surface, right, this seems like a very, uh, an incredibly spiritual thing to say on the part of Saul, right? I mean, what could be more spiritual than to say, everybody, we're all going to fast. We're going to dedicate this day to the Lord. We're going to set ourselves apart for the Lord. It all seems very spiritual, right? I mean, you can just hear Saul saying it with that lofty kind of spiritual voice and spiritual tone in his voice, like, men, we want God to do a great work amongst us, don't we? So we need to fast, right? And I'm going to enforce the, uh, th- this among the whole army. I'm going to enforce it with a curse, right? If you don't fast with us, God will curse you. Well, what could be wrong with that? What could possibly be wrong with doing something so spiritual as having a fast? Well, there was a lot wrong with it, actually. Uh, Let me point out three things to you that are wrong with what Saul's doing here. First of all, Saul's focus is off, right? His focus is way off. Let me point this out to you. Notice it says in there again in verse 24, it says, Paul says, or Saul says, no one can eat anything. We're going to fast until when? until I have taken vengeance on my enemies. Saul's words here reveal that Saul thinks this is all about him. Saul's focus is not on the Lord. That's not why he's wanting to fast. Saul's focus is on himself. Saul thinks this is about him. For Saul, this battle isn't about saving the nation. It's not about doing the will of God. For Saul, this battle is about his reputation. His reputation is on the line here. So he says, we're going to fast. That way, we can you know, ensure that God will give us the victory. Saul's quite the narcissist, really, right? He thinks that all these people in the army exist to serve him, to help him get what he wants. Jesus modeled a completely different kind of attitude, especially when it comes to leadership. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be great in my kingdom, he must become the servant of all. Jesus said, as a leader, he says, I have not come so that people would serve me, but I have come to become the servant. I have come to serve even to the point of giving my life. Not only does Saul think that this whole battle is all about him, that the soldiers exist, to serve his reputation. But Saul also thinks, we see, and we see this multiple times throughout his story in the Bible, Saul thinks that God exists for him as well to help him get what he wants. I mean, Saul basically views God as a good luck charm. Saul views God as a higher power that he can tap into and harness to get the things that he wants, right? And and the way that you harness that Higher power is by doing these spiritual acts like fasting and, and uh, you know, bringing in the Ark of the Covenant and things like that, right? For Saul, these, these spiritual acts that he does, they were, they were not ways of seeking God or worshiping God. For him, they were ways that he thought he could coerce God into doing what he wanted God to do. You know, oftentimes you hear about people talk about a higher power, right? I believe in a higher power. But really think about that. What is, think about how different that is to, to think about a higher power that you can somehow tap into versus what the Bible presents is a God who, said, who, who asks that, or who tells us to call him Lord and to make him Lord of our lives. We're not tapping into him. We're, we're, we're getting on board with what he's doing. That's a huge difference. Uh, Saul is an example, though, of how even in the midst of doing something spiritual, you can be focused on yourself. Right? Even in the midst of doing something spiritual, it's possible to be completely self-absorbed. Okay? Secondly, um, 
not only was Paul's, or Saul's focus off, I'm probably going to keep doing that, so sorry about that. Uh, Saul's focus was off, but also Saul's motivation. Saul's motivation was off. Now, I believe here that Saul was motivated by insecurity. Insecurity, and I'll tell you why. Um, and, and again, this is also taking the rest of his story into account. I mean, think about it. Why would Saul make such a bold pronouncement? Nobody eats today until I've gotten vengeance on my enemies. It's a fast, a day of fasting to the Lord. Why would he do something like this, this bold, at a time like this? I believe it's because he's trying to prove to everybody that he is super spiritual. You know, look at me, guys. Do you see how spiritual I am? Do you see how serious I am about God? We're going to fast, right? Now, why does Saul care if people think that he's super spiritual or not? Here's why. Because he desperately wants people to respect him. He desperately wants people to respect him. And so what we see here is that Saul is making this very bold pronouncement. Everybody's going to fast today. But the timing is so weird, right? This is so awkward. It's so contrived, so clunky, right? I mean, this is a time when these guys have been fighting all day long. And now they've got to run over hills and valleys chasing down the Philistines and then they're going to fight in hand-to-hand combat even more. Doesn't that seem like a weird time to make people fast? Why is Saul doing this? It doesn't really make any sense. Saul is doing this because he wants people to think that he's a really spiritual guy. Why? So they'll respect him. Do you see how spiritual I am? We're going to fast. You remember last week we saw something similar that he did. God was giving them victory over the Philistines and instead of mounting up and riding into battle, Saul says, hey, we should bring the Ark of the Covenant in here. We'll have a worship service. Saul, it's not time for a worship service. It's time to fight. We could have the worship service after, right? Saul, this isn't a good time for a fast. What What are you doing, right? He wants people to think he's spiritual. Do you see how spiritual I am? You see how serious I am about God? Super serious, man. I'm super spiritual. Do you respect me now? You see this desperation in Saul for people's respect, for people to think that he's spiritual. Saul isn't doing this because he's actually hearing from God. He wants people to think that he's spiritual so they'll respect him. In fact, though, that's the problem. Just the opposite is going to happen. Rather than respecting him more, the soldiers are going to start trusting Saul less and less. Rather than giving the army more resolve, greater resolve by calling them to focus on the Lord, this fast is going to be like throwing a wet blanket on the fire of of bold faith and trust in God that was stirred up by Jonathan just a few verses earlier. You know, here, here what we see in Saul, we see an example of how it's possible to do spiritual things for very unspiritual reasons. Let me say that again. In in Saul, we have an example of how it's possible to do spiritual things for very unspiritual reasons. Thirdly, the, the third problem here is this. Saul's punishment was wrong. The punishment was wrong. Saul says, if anybody does it, if anybody eats, then God's gonna curse them. They're gonna be cursed. What? Wait a second. Saul, who are you to say that God is going to curse people if they don't keep this fast? God didn't pronounce this. Nowhere in the Bible where you ever find that God told people on the day of battle not to eat, right? The punishment was wrong because it was, it was presumptuous on the part of Saul to claim that God would curse anybody who broke his rule. 
Not only that, but, but this was wrong because Saul used the threat of punishment to coerce people into making a religious promise. I'm going to say that again because I think it's, it's important. This was wrong because Saul is using the threat of punishment to coerce people into making religious promises. You see? You see, it would have been one thing if Saul would stand up before the people and say, Men, I'm fasting today. I'm setting aside this day for the Lord to focus on him. And if any of you want to join me, then join me. That would have been true leadership. That would have earned the men's respect, actually, right? But instead of leading by example and inviting others to follow him, Saul says, you all have to take this vow, and if you mess up, you're going to be punished, right? There's nothing spiritual about that. There's nothing God-honoring or God-pleasing about coercing people into fasting and praying under the threat of punishment, and look at the effect that it had on the people, this forced fast. It says there, at the beginning of the verse, it says that the men of Israel were distressed that day. They were distressed. This was not a time for a fast. This was a day to chase down the Philistines and complete this great victory that God had handed to them, right? This isn't a day for being weakened physically or, or having your senses dulled because of exhaustion. Saul, what are you doing, Saul? You know, you wish you could just speak to him and be like, Saul, man, can't you see yourself? You're not doing anything good for the nation. You're, you're just trying to exalt yourself, man. You're just trying to show off a spiritual image before the people. There's nothing spiritual about this, Saul. You know, we read on in, in verse 25, we see what happens as a result of this, um, this fast. Now all the people of the land came to a forest and there was honey on the ground and when the people came into the woods there was honey dripping but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath so here's what happens they go into this forest and there's wild honey there on the ground and they they they're famished right they're like starving and they they're all just gonna fight over this little bit of honey right but but nobody nobody will touch it because they're afraid of being cursed by God if they eat this honey because Saul pronounced this oath over them against their I mean made them take an oath right I believe that God was providing honey for them but this is the shame about it they couldn't partake in it because Saul had made them take this this silly oath because he wanted people to think that he was super spiritual let's read on in verse 27 but Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath Therefore he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand, dipped it in the honeycomb, and placed it, or put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened, right? He, he got that sugar rush, right? It was good for him. And, and Jonathan, right, he wasn't there when Saul made this oath, when Saul made the people all raise their right hand and promise not to eat anything until sundown. He wasn't there. He didn't know about it. He just innocently eats this honey, right? Where was Jonathan? He was out actually doing the stuff, right? It's the stuff that Saul's talking about. Jonathan has been actually out there doing it, actually trusting God, actually going out there and fighting. Saul's over there making, you know, big uh, pontificating on his, his big rules for everybody, but Jonathan's actually out there fighting, and for that reason, he doesn't hear the rule. Verse 28. Then one of the people said to Jonathan, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day and the people were faint. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. 
Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now would there have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. You know, probably, honestly, if Jonathan had something like this to say about his father, who's the king and the leader of the army, he probably should have gone to him personally and said this to him himself. That would have been the right way to handle this. That being said, though, everything Jonathan says is absolutely correct. Saul was troubling Israel that day. He wasn't blessing the nation. You know what he was doing? He was laying an unnecessary burden on the people. Now, that is the very definition of legalism. Do you know that? Placing an unnecessary burden, a heavy burden on the people. On a day when the people should have been strong and active, the people were weak and distracted because Saul had forced them to take this fast. And Jonathan says, oh, what has my father done? How much greater would our victory have been if my father hadn't placed the army under this silly oath? Here's the thing I want to point out from all this. Saul's foolish oath reveals the fact that he completely misunderstands what it means to be truly spiritual. I'm going to say that again. Saul's foolish oath reveals the fact that he completely misunderstands what it means to be spiritual. And I think that's true of many people today. I think many people like the idea of being spiritual, but they're not really sure what that means. And I think that oftentimes if you'd ask them to define it for you, you'd find that their definition of spirituality doesn't match a, a true definition of spirituality that the Bible gives us. You know, Saul, like many people today, he thought that this is what makes you spiritual, the following things. Deprive yourself of physical pleasure. Practice spiritual disciplines, prayer, worship, reading the scriptures, fasting, and take religious vows and keep them. And if you do those things, you will be a spiritual person. You know, we live in a place here in Colorado uh, where it's very popular to be spiritual. We live in a county with a big city that considers itself a very spiritual place. And you often hear people say all the time, I am a spiritual person. I don't necessarily do organized religion, you know, but I'm a very spiritual person. But what does that even mean? What does that mean? Many people, if you would ask them what it means, they would say, well, to be spiritual, it means I pray, I meditate, uh, I'm reflective, right? They would say, it means that I try to be a good person. It means that I deny myself physically so that I can tap into the spiritual realm. Now, I'm not saying any of those are bad things. In fact, the Bible encourages us to do many of those spiritual practices and, and and, you know, to deny our flesh at times. But what I'm saying is this. You can do all of those things and still not be a spiritual person. You can do all those things, right? And still not be a spiritual person. Those things don't make you spiritual. According to the Bible, here's what makes you a spiritual person. This is what it means to be really spiritual. It means to have a living relationship with God. A living relationship with God. That is what makes you spiritual. A dynamic relationship with the living God, which is based on walking with him by faith. You know, interestingly, the Bible does use this term spiritual person or spiritual man. It uses it quite a bit, especially in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul loves to use this term, the spiritual man, which he contrasts with the carnal man right? And the carnal man, says Paul, is only concerned with the things of the flesh, but the spiritual man is concerned with the things of God. 
And here's what, here's what the Bible teaches about true spirituality. It says that because of sin, right? Because of sin, which is in the world, which we're all born into, we are born spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. God created us out of all creation in his image. Created us as human beings out of all creation. We alone are created in his image, right? And that is just a huge, massive concept. It has so many implications. But here's one of the implications of what it means to be created in the image of God. God created us as human beings to function on three planes, right? Right, there, there's our physical plane, there's our, our bodies, right? And then there's, of course, the mental and emotional plane, right? Our minds and our emotions. And, and thirdly, there is a spiritual plane. God has given us an eternal spirit. That's a part of us that will live forever and the part of us that connects with God. Now, this is what differentiates us from all other creatures in the world, right? That we are made to be spiritual beings. We're made to live forever. We are made to know and connect with God. But the Bible tells us that we're broken, inherently broken. This part of us that was specifically created, our spirit, it was born broken, cut off from God. And because of that, we are dead spiritually. And that's why Jesus, when he, when he came, he said, if you wanna really live, if you want to really see the kingdom of heaven, there's only one way. You have to be born again. You have to be born again. You need to become, a, you need to become alive spiritually. You need to do that by, by coming into a relationship with God, your creator. Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said the, the one and only way to come to God the Father, to have a relationship with God, to be born again in your spirit, to have that third plane of your life come to life, he says, by putting your faith in me and what I am going to do for you in your place on the cross. You know, this is the hope that the Old Testament saints had as well. They looked forward to a Messiah who would come and save the world, right, and save them. And now we, on the other side of history, we're looking back to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, we define history by that point. He came, right? Everybody else looked forward to him. Now we look back to him. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came and saved us. We put our faith and trust in what he accomplished for us on the cross. And as we do that, right, as we put our faith in him as our Savior, we declare him to be Lord of our lives. We're born again. We come alive spiritually. That's what it means to be a spiritual person. And think about it this way. I like to think about it like this. It's only when you come alive spiritually that you begin to fully live. You know that? I mean, think about it like this. If you're only living on the two natural planes, right? Paul uses that term, the natural man. A natural man lives on two of the three planes. He's firing on two out of three pistons, right? The two planes, the physical and the emotional and the mental, right? If you're living on that level, you're basically living on the same level as an animal. Animals live on those levels too, right? You know, animals have thoughts. Animals have emotions. That's why we have pet psychologists to help our pets who are struggling with depression and other mental health issues you know it's the main reason I don't have a pet because if I had one I'd think you know I should really provide him with the care that he needs and I just can't afford a pet psychologist so I haven't gotten a pet yet you know maybe someday animals obviously have bodies as well right but you know what you never see your dog you know just pause a moment before he 
eats his dinner, right? To give thanks to God. You never see your cat getting up early on Sunday morning to get ready to go to church and worship, right? They just don't care. I don't know what their problem is. They just don't care. Because alone, out of all creation, God has created us as human beings in his image. And part of that means that he's given us an eternal spirit, right? An eternal spirit made to connect with him, made to live forever. And until you've been born again in your spirit, you're not living fully. You're only living two-thirds of a life, you know? You're not living fully. You're living basically on the same level as an animal, only concerned with meeting your physical desires and, and emotional needs, but not concerned with the eternal things of God. So you see, according to the Bible, here's my point. What makes a person truly spiritual is that they have a relationship with the living God. They have a dynamic relationship with God built on faith and trust in his character and in his promises, uh, one that moves in step with him. That's what it means to be alive in your spirit, right? You can, you can do those things that I talked about earlier. You can deprive yourself of physical pleasure. You can take hundreds of oaths and, and religious vows. You can fast for weeks, but none of those things will actually make you spiritual, unless you have a relationship with God. Now here, here in this chapter, what we have is a contrast between two men, right? We have Saul and Jonathan. Saul is working so hard to make people, to convince people that he is spiritual by making rules and, and following disciplines. But it's awkward, isn't it? It's clunky, right? It's contrived. And it's all done for show. But Jonathan, in Jonathan we see a man who's free, Right? Man who's free, and, and what's he free to do? He's free to walk with God and, and respond to God and move where God calls him to move, right? He's free to just be in this relationship with God, walking with him step by step in faith. It's a beautiful picture as opposed to Saul. It just makes us shake our heads. No, Saul, what are you doing? And what these men represent, they represent two approaches to, uh, or two different approaches to God, Right? Two approaches to God. In Saul, we see the legalistic approach to God. Legalism, right? It expresses itself in a number of ways. It's a word that's thrown around a lot, but let me explain to you two expressions or two ways that legalism works itself out practically. First of all, one expression of legalism is in the performance trap. The performance trap is what I like to call it. The performance trap means that you are, you believe, you perceive that your standing or other people's standing before God is based on performance, right? When you're good and you do all the right stuff and you don't do any of the wrong stuff, well then God loves you and God's gonna bless you and he's got favor on your life. But when you're bad, God's not so sure about that, Right? That's the performance trap, right? That you think that your standing before God is based on performance. Now what's wrong with that? You might say, isn't that true? No, not at all, right? That's the gospel, that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your standing before God is based on what he has done for you and what he has accomplished for you on the cross. He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness, and we stand before God righteous because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Not because of the things that we do for him, but because of what he did on our behalf. That's the gospel. Another expression of legalism is not just a performance trap, but it's one we clearly see here. It's when people take rules and traditions of men and they present them as God's law, right? 
That's what Saul did here in this story. Nobody can eat. And if you do, you'll be cursed by God. Well, that wasn't God's command at all. This was, this was just Saul's command. Saul made this rule up, uh, and, but he made it out. He presented it as if it was from God. Now, that kind of thing is all too common. Maybe you've experienced it yourself. Let me give you some examples. Christian groups like to make rules, and they often elevate those rules to the place of this is God's edict, right? Men cannot have beards was one in one church. Well, another church requires that men should have beards, right? You know what I mean? Uh, here's what you can wear in church, and here's what you can't wear, right? And, but they're always like, Shorts, you can't wear shorts because God hates shorts, right? And it's, since when does God hate shorts? And, you know, you, here's what you can eat on certain days, but here's what you can't eat on certain days. And here's the kind of stuff that you must, yeah, you get it, you know? They make up all these rules. If you want to make rules, that's fine. But the problem is when you make your rules out to be God's rules, you say, well, this is from God, right? When in fact they're not, right? Jesus spoke against this very thing. Speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus said, it's in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He said, they worship me in vain because they teach as doctrine the commandments of men. Later on, Jesus said in, in Matthew 23 of the same religious leaders, he said, they lay heavy burdens on people. They lay heavy burdens on people, unnecessarily. That's what Saul is doing. He's placing unnecessary burdens on people that are heavy for them. They're not from God. They're doing more harm than they're doing good. That's legalism. And here in this story, Jonathan, he isn't keeping Saul's legalistic rules, but the irony is Jonathan's free, but he's the spiritual one. Jonathan's walking with the Lord by faith. And despite Saul's attempts to make people think that he's super spiritual, by making a vow and taking a fast, right? Saul is actually not very spiritual at all because his concern is not for what God actually wants, which is to go after the Philistines. His concern is for what people will think about him, making people, convincing them that he is really a spiritual person. Now you might say, Nick, what, what problem do you got with fasting what problem do you have with denying yourself didn't Jesus teach us to fast didn't Jesus teach us to pray didn't Jesus teach us to deny ourselves absolutely absolutely but why you do those things is so very important you know that why the why is so important it's just as important as the what right you can fast and pray in a legalistic way did you know that thinking that your performance merits you something before God or you can fast and pray because you have a relationship with God that you want to cultivate and you want to deepen right you can fast and pray for legalistic reasons because you want people to see it right you want people to be impressed with you you know you just throw it out there every now and then you eat oh hey you want to go out to lunch no I'll be fasting all week long at exactly that time. So no, I can't eat lunch with you. Um, oh yeah, no, I can't meet at that time either. That's when I pray on my knees, on nails. That's what I do. I'm just, uh, I mean, you know, I just won't be available at that time. 
So, you know, you can do it because you want people to be impressed with you. Or you can do the same thing. You can fast and you can pray because you only sincerely want to press in to a deeper relationship with God. You really want to hear his voice so that you can, you can set aside, you know, you'll fast and you say, I want to set aside some of these distractions, some of these physical things from this world so that I can just have a laser focus on God for a time. You see the difference in attitude? You know, you can do the same action but for very different reasons and with very different goals in mind and this story is a perfect illustration of that. You know, when you really understand the gospel, here's what it does. It changes your motivations. When you really understand that God loves you, that he loves you so much that he gave everything for you, when you really understand that you are truly forgiven in Jesus Christ, then you no longer have to pray and fast because you think you have to in order to merit God's favor or to impress other people. You get to do it because you have come alive. You get to do it because you've come alive in your spirit and you just want to know this one who created you to be the unique person that he did, who gave everything so that he could have you even to the point of death. And you walk with him and you follow him and you want to be led by him. When you really understand the gospel, it might not change what you do, but it certainly changes why you do it. Let's carry on in verse 31. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. So the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously Roll a large stone to me this day. And then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So one of the people, every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Okay, so here's what happens. You know, the fast lasted until sundown because that's when, uh, you know, the new day begins for the Jewish people. So sundown uh, came and the people are just so incredibly famished, right? That they just, they get these animals and they slaughter them on the ground and they just start eating the meat with the blood in it. Now the problem with that is that it was unkosher. Deuteronomy chapter 12 it says in the law of Moses that blood had to be drained out of the meat because it, before it was eaten because blood is a sign of life. And life belongs to God, not to us. And so God says, I don't want you to eat it. I want you to give it back to me because it represents life. And so they were to drain the blood out of any meat they ate and pour it on the ground. That's how they gave it back to God. But these guys couldn't wait. They were just so hungry. After a long day of, of running and fighting and fasting, and Saul sees this and he says, what are you guys doing? You know, you're so unspiritual. And so Saul builds an altar and he sacrifices to the Lord and they, they finally prepare the meat in a kosher way. But you know, none of this would have happened had Saul not made the people take this legalistic vow. Verse 36. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let's draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him on that day. Now they've eaten, they've got all their energy back. Saul says, let's do it, man. Let's go after the Philistines. Let's go get them. We'll strike them down. 
And Saul calls the priest over and they seek God and they seek an answer from God. God, should we go? Do you want us to? Will you give us the victory? But they get no answer. And what do you do when God doesn't answer you? Well, here's what Saul does. He likes to blame people. Let's look at verse 39. As the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among the people answered him. I'm sorry, verse 38. Saul said, come over here, the chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. Basically he's saying, I know that there's a sinner in here. And I'm going to find you, right? And he says in 39, even if it's Jonathan, I'll kill him. I'll kill him today. Punish him, right? Now this is a foolish vow. Personally, I have to say, obviously, I don't think that Saul knew it was Jonathan. I think he's doing this for emphasis to show how dead serious he is. He says, even if it's my own son, I'll kill him if he ate today, if he broke my rule. But this is another vow he's taking, right? Another foolish vow. This is the second one he's taking here. Uh, This is going to backfire on him. You already see it coming. He's, He's not having a good day here, is he? From verse 40, then Saul said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do whatever seems good to you. Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give us a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. So Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die? Oh, Saul, what are you doing? Surely to Saul's surprise, they cast lots. He's expecting that it's one of the children of Israel who was walking through the forest and ate the honey, but the lot falls on him and Jonathan. You can imagine how surprised he must have been. Surely he wasn't expecting that, but look at the bind he's in now. He, he made this vow. He's taken two vows now. Each of them has backfired. He's, either gonna, he's faced with a situation. He's either got to break his vow and swallow his pride, right? Or he's going to have to kill his own son. This is where Saul's legalistic vows have gotten him. Check out what happens in verse 44. Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Wow. Saul's not going not gonna to back down on this one, is he? He's not going to swallow his pride. He's not going to say, okay, look, I was wrong. It's a big mistake, right? He, he's not even going to stop making oaths. This is the third oath that he's making in this chapter. He's Mr. Oath, Mr. Vow, Mr. Curse, right? He can't stop. He's just digging himself deeper and deeper. And none of these oaths, none of these promises are from God. Right? This is the sign, by the way, of a, a weak man or woman. Anytime you see somebody who's, who's out there saying, oh, I promise, man. I super duper duper promise. I swear on a stack of Bibles, right? On my mother's grave. Well, you know there's something wrong with that person's word, right? Why do they need all those oaths and curses? Jesus told us, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Keep it that simple. Saul has tried to make himself Mr. Oath, Mr. Curse, Mr. Spiritual Authority but none of it's from God, and it all stinks. And now here's Saul, and look what's happening. He's ready to put his own son to death rather than admit that he was wrong. He made all these foolish oaths. He made it out like he's speaking on the authority of God, which was not true. And now rather than humbling himself and repenting and just saying, I was wrong, forgive me. Saul is so proud. He's so worried about other people thinking that he's, you know, this great person. He 
He's so worried about his image that he's about to put his own son to death. That is sad. This is a man who's just lost in pride, who cares about nothing other than his image at this point. And we're going to finish here with these two verses. Verse 45 and 46. The people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished his great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. And then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Saul was ready to kill his own son because of these foolish, silly oaths that he made, but the people stopped him from doing it. This is a dark moment for Saul. Everything that he wanted to accomplish on this day, it's all backfired on him terribly. He wanted to make the people respect him more. That was the whole point of all of this stuff that he did, but in the end, it just had the opposite effect. In the end, Saul has lost everybody's respect. He, he's lost ground as a leader. His people don't trust him. They, they don't even listen to him when he gives them commands now. He has exasperated the people. He, he led them to sin against God's commandment. He almost killed his own son. And for what? Because he innocently ate a little bit of honey, which he didn't even know was against the rules, which wasn't even God's rule to begin with. It was just Saul's arbitrary rule, which, which in the end only kept Israel from having the great victory that they would have had. Saul, what are you doing? Verse 46, we read, the Philistines went to their place and Saul went to his place. That sounds like a good ending, right? It's not. You know what that means? That means that they got away. Remember, they were chasing them. They were gonna finish them off. They were gonna get the victory that God had given them. But in the end, they spend all their time arguing. They spend all their time lethargic because they can't eat. And then they spend all their time casting lots and then defending Jonathan and keeping him from being killed by Saul. And then, hey, guess what? The Philistines just got away. You know, and, and guess what's going to happen? They're going to regroup and they're going to attack again. And they're going to oppress Israel again. Saul, what are you doing? Saul, you're your own worst enemy. But isn't that true of all of us? Isn't it true of most of us? You are your own worst enemy. I, I'm probably my own worst enemy. It, it's true of most of us, but here's the thing I want you to learn from Saul. There are a ton of ways that all of this could have been avoided, and it's better that we learn from Saul's mistakes and that we have to learn the hard way through our own mistakes. So here's a few things we can learn from Saul. First of all, if you're wrong, be quick to repent, Right? If you're wrong, be quick to repent. There is nothing noble or respectable about being stubborn and digging in your heels when you've been wrong. Being foolishly persistent in something that you've been wrong about, right? Just admit it. Repent. If you do that, you know what happens? You prevent things from getting worse like they did with Saul. So first of all, if you've been wrong, don't dig in your heels. Just repent before God, before other people. Secondly, don't do legalism. Don't do it. Legalism is defeating. That's what this story tells us. Legalism doesn't give you victory. In fact, it diminishes the victory that you could have by walking in step with God by faith. And finally, embrace the gospel. Embrace the gospel and become a person of integrity. Look at, looking at Saul from a distance, I'm sure there were people who looked at him and said, that guy, Man, he's spiritual. Look, what a spiritual leader we have. Look at his faith, man. Look at him. He's out there fasting on a day when they're chasing after the Philistines. Wow, that's a spiritual guy. But when you get up close to him, like we do here in our story, you realize that it was all very shallow. It, it looked strong, but it was all very shallow. 
Does that describe you sometimes? Here's what I think we need to learn from Saul. Rather than worrying about your image, actually make it your goal to go deeper in your relationship with God in reality, right? In reality, pursue him and pray and fast and read his word and put his word into practice in your life and lay aside those things in your life which are hindering you in that pursuit of God. But do all those things, not for the sake of impressing people, not in an attempt to merit God's favor, but because he has made you alive spiritually. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank you for that great truth, Lord, that in Jesus Christ, you have made us alive spiritually. Lord, we who were dead in our transgressions and sins, Lord, you have made us alive in Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be made new. We can be redeemed, Lord. We can be born again to a living hope. Lord, I wanna pray right now for anybody here today, anybody here who, who might consider themselves a spiritual person but hasn't actually come alive in their spirit by giving themselves, availing themselves to you and receiving the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not yet put their faith in you, I pray, Lord, they would do it now. And I pray that they would pray this prayer with me. Lord, I confess that I have sinned, that I have fallen short, Lord, and I thank you that Jesus Christ died for me. I thank you, Lord, that you give me your righteousness in Jesus and all you want to take from me is my sin. Lord, you want to take my old life. You want to give me a new life. Lord, we want to live for you today. Lord, all of us today, I pray that you would help us to be truly spiritual people, not just in, in word, Lord, but, but in reality. Lord, in, in our hearts, in our heart of hearts, let us be the people you call us to be. Let us be people of integrity. Lord, people who really are uh, spiritual people because we have come alive in Jesus Christ. Help us to walk with you by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.